You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Jessica Toku Ingoa, no mai haere mai ki te waia mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rāpare Thursday. I'm your host Jessica, filling in for Caden, and I'll be with you for the next hour. If I akine coming up on the show, Caden speaks to Deputy Labour Leader Carmel Cipolloni about the government increasing benefit sanctions as well as scrapping Te Aka Whai Ora, the Māori Health Authority. Producer Jasmine also reports on the reaction to the government passing legislation under urgency to disestablish the Māori Health Authority. I speak to Head of Journalism at AUT, Greg Treadwell, about the closure of News Hub, and doctoral candidate Crystal Salatas about her research aimed at reducing the prevalence of premature birth in Aotearoa. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so get in touch. Tuku Patahimai, text in on 5395 or Waiamai Give us a call in studio on 309 Mihari ki 95BFM irakati.com and you can catch all of these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Now it's time for our weekly catch-up with the Labour Party's Carmel Cipolloni. This week for our catch-up with Labour Deputy Leader Carmel Cipolloni, I ask about the Ministry of Social Development's Select Committee questioning on benefit sanctions and the law the government has passed under urgency this week. Here is that interview. Last week, an MSD official was accused of misleading politicians over whether or not beneficiaries are sanctioned for not attending work expos. The status quo is more likely, yes, beneficiaries are sanctioned for not attending work expos. Is this something you support? Well, I think that they it was a very robust debate that was going on in the select committee. To be fair, it was kind of broken up because at the time we just received the um, news about FFO and industry after that debate, uh, we suspended the the actual select committee. Um, there are still some sanctions and work obligations that are, are applied, um, and generally they are applied sparingly um, and as a last resort, uh, and that is certainly something that I endorsed when I was the minister. We saw a huge drop-off in the number of uh, sanctions that were applied, particularly with respect to families uh, that had children. My concern now is that the rhetoric from the government means that they're going to uh, be less considered when applying them, or their expectation is that they're going to be applied more. And that uh, doesn't you know, support those families that are already in poverty. Often the reason why someone may get a sanction applied is because they've missed an, or, or they're not not a sanction, but they may be at risk of getting a sanction applied is because they've missed an appointment. There are often uh, reasons for that, um, and there have been opportunities to re-comply, uh, which means that they are contacted uh, before, you know, numerous times before they actually have a sanction applied. 
Uh, and so that has seen the drop-off in terms of the consideration of whether or not a sanction is applied, and we want that to continue. Does this mean the rules around sanctions for beneficiaries still need to change, or are they OK as they are? Well, we were still exploring the sanctions that are in place. Um, I did say when I was Minister, right from the start, that we wouldn't necessarily see all work obligations go. Um, it needed to be a last resort where those sanctions were applied, uh, and so I think that it's important that that work continues. I don't trust that the review of sanctions and whether or not they work will continue under this government. They seem to be hell-bent on just pushing things through with no evidence base, uh, whereas the evidence base that we have seen is that they don't necessarily lead to the outcomes uh, that uh, you know officials or governments assume they might. You know, And so if they don't work, then there needs to be some consideration for whether or not they should still exist. Speaking of pushing things through, the government has been busy rapidly passing legislation under urgency this week. Te Pātamaari has pushed back against this use of urgency as being unconstitutional. Would you agree with this? Uh, the way that we've all been pushing back, every political party in opposition, the Greens, Māori Party and the Labour Party, on the way that this government is using uh, urgency... The, the, the disestablishment of the Māori Health Authority being pushed through an urgency is a classic example. Uh, you know, at the end of this week, we're expecting that the Waitangi Tribunal's ruling will come out on this decision. And so you would expect that they could wait until that information comes forward before they had to actually take this legislation through, particularly given that the commencement date is not until June the 30th. So there was no need to do that at urgency this week. Uh, also, there are a lot of New Zealanders out there that would want the opportunity for their voice to be heard on that particular bill, but they won't because of the fact that it got pushed through an urgency. Sometimes urgency is necessary. Uh, you know, it may be that there's uh, some deadline that needs to be met uh, in order for the, uh, you know, for the, so the legislation needs to be passed. But with that particular bill... Uh, there was no urgency required. Then we had the smoke-free legislation go through or the repeal of smoke-free legislation go through an urgency. Again, why is that a priority for New Zealand and what is the urgency in that? The only thing that we can uh, you know, draw a conclusion on is that they, the government have been captured by tobacco lobbyists and that should be of concern to all New Zealand. Part of the specific legislation passed, as you mentioned, included the scrapping of the Māori Health Authority. Is this specific legislation consistent with improving health outcomes for Māori? And I know you know this, but who often have worse health outcomes than other demographics? Absolutely. And so what now what is going to happen is we go back to the status quo. The status quo uh, over the course of decades has not been working for Māori. Māori die younger. Uh, Māori uh, are often at, at the, the bottom of the statistics for a number of health outcomes. And this was an attempt to actually build a platform to change that. It was really disappointing in the House <laughs> to hear some members from the government talking about how uh, we need to make sure that uh, access to healthcare is fair and that, uh, that healthcare is not race-based. Well, it has not privileged party in any way uh, over the course of the history of this country. And so the establishment of the Māori Health Authority was actually to support the changing the health outcomes for Māori, was supported by the health experts, was supported by Māori, 
Uh, and it was an important change and an important platform that has now just been ripped away. And so we go back to the status quo. So basically, we're condemning Māori further uh, to continue uh, health statistics that fall below the rest of New Zealand. That's not good for Māori, but it's actually not good for all of New Zealand as well. Can you elaborate a bit on what you mean by it's not good for any New Zealanders? Because a lot of this rhetoric has focused on Māori, but how would it impact other demographics? Well, we all at some point in time, across the course of our lives, need to access the health system. Uh, often, you know, there are waiting lists for things. Often uh, there are delays in being able to get uh, the health support that we need, whether it's something simple like a, a GP appointment. Now, when you've got particular um, demographic groups uh, who are having to access the health system more than anyone else, uh, because of the, the uh, health conditions that they uh, are un, you know, un, uh, represented uh, disproportionately with, and that puts pressure on the health system for everyone, and it's pressure that is actually avoidable. And so if we were to respond to the health needs of the demographic groups that unfortunately have the poorest health outcomes, then we would be responding to the demand and addressing the demands on the health system potentially freeing up uh, the capacity for the health system to respond to all of the needs of New Zealanders. But instead now we've gone back to square one, which is uh, uh, basically a space where we've got a particular group, Māori, uh, who are going to need to access the health system more than anyone else, and, and it's avoidable. So really this government is cutting off their nose despite their face? Well, it feels that way, and it also feels, uh, you know, the narrative around it with regards to uh, in pushing out during the election, and now they continue to, that a Māori Health Authority was a race-based decision, and that in, in some way it was unfair to the rest of New Zealand, uh, or the rest of New Zealanders, you know, was just, an, just a, a terrible, terrible narrative that has created division amongst New Zealanders and then doesn't lead us to actually being able to make progress with regards to, you know, healthcare for Māori or for all New Zealanders. That was Labour Deputy Leader Carmel Cipolloni on benefit sanctions and the laws passed under urgency this week. That was the Labour Party's Carmel Cipolloni. Edirangi Paul, Radio Bosom. The Wire. We'll be right back after this short break. Keep it on the bee. Outside, round the outside. You know, 
What's this even letter word for street fighter? Brawler. Hey, what's happening at Ponsonby Social Club this week? Taylor Griffin in green EP release party with special guest Nathan Haynes. And tomorrow, investigators live with support from Andy JV and Grantis. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Tracks at Motet for a day filled with tramtastic fun at the ever popular live day, Trams, Sunday, March 17th. Check out their stunning fleet of trams, including their double decker tram, Big Ben. Keep track of your rides throughout the day with a tram tracker card. Plus, you can even make your own mini tram to take home. Motet's live day, Trams, Sunday, March 17th, 10 a.m. till 4 p.m., included in general entry. Find out more at motat.nz. It's music. Why did the chicken cross the street? 
to get to the Cross Street Music Festival. And if you want to find out why the chicken went to the Cross Street Festival, you'll have to go yourself. Win tickets to Cross Street Music Festival. Just listen to 95 BFM Breakfast for your cue to enter. Make sure you have that B card ready to go. 95BFM presents Cross Street Music Festival, Saturday, March 9th. Get your tickets from crossstreetmusicfestival.co.nz. Uh, I don't know, and, and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. The Wire. Welcome back. You're listening to The Wire, 95BFM's news and current affairs show. Yesterday, News Hub, one of Aotearoa's largest commercial newsrooms, announced it is shutting down. Up to 300 people, including journalists and support staff, are expected to lose their jobs. I spoke to senior lecturer in communication studies and head of journalism at AUT, Greg Treadwell, about what this indicates about the state of journalism in Aotearoa. For those who might not know, can you tell us what has happened to News Hub? Well, yesterday, of course, Warner Brothers Discovery um, announced uh, somewhat unceremoniously that uh, by the end of June, uh, the News Hub operation would be closed uh, entirely. Uh, that's both the News Hub television news services and uh, and its well-read website. Uh, and that leaves just, uh, in the mainstream anyway, TVNZ as the central, and for Katamari, of course, uh, um, as the only um, public interest free-to-air broadcasters. What do you think this will mean for the future of the journalism industry here in Aotearoa? Well, it's just one of the things that are, that is shaping. I mean, it's an effect of what's going on um, as opposed to a, a, an isolated incident that's going to um, impact the future of the media. It's rather just part of the ongoing uh, issues that democratic media face today, uh, years of underfunding uh, and, uh, um, you know, ownership, n- not all, obviously, but, but so much of our media now owned by global corporates uh, for whom our own issues around democracy, transparency, accountability aren't, aren't a priority. Uh, what's a priority for global corporates, of course, is their, um, their margin. Uh, and when the margin sinks into the negative, as it apparently clearly has done, uh, with uh, um, Warner Brothers New Zealand, um, uh, then they simply pull the plug on businesses that aren't turning a good profit. Um, and and you know it's been well acknowledged that News Hub has been making losses. It's not the closure of something uh, for no reason, but it's the closure of something with ongoing effects for the public sphere in Aotearoa, where uh, you know we have a shrinking um, uh, a public sphere at a time when we probably need a much uh, strengthened one. And there have been some discussions about whether the government could step in to fund News Hub. Do you think we could see the government or someone else step up to do this? No, I would be very, very surprised if it was the government, any government, but particularly this one. Um, no, and I don't think that's the answer, personally. I think that the media needs to be a really good balance of, of state-owned and, and privately-owned, uh, and to have uh, TVNZ and News Hub both 
um, owned by the government would be, you know, not in the interests of democracy or openness. Uh, I think that, that, you know, there is a possibility that there may be a corporate bailout uh, as opposed to a state one. Um, but I, I don't know where that's coming from. Um, it's not an attractive business, I don't think, to, to international media corporates who are looking to invest anywhere. Um, uh, as I say, um, Warner Brothers didn't pull out for no reason. If it was making money, they'd still be there. Uh, but, but unfortunately, the, the knock-on effect is, is really quite significant for our democracy. I think the one, you know, the major background issue behind news media today is uh, uh, the fact that we've left a large part of it to the vagaries of the open market. And, and as I say, while I, I don't think the, the, the state should own all the media, that would be terrible. That sounds like Russia to me. But I think um, we, you know, we need a good balance of, of public and private media. And if we don't manage that, then um, in the end, you know, we, we, the media is not able to, com to complete its fourth estate duties to its best abilities, and we need it to do it to its best abilities. And, and at the moment, it seems increasingly it's not going to be able to do that for us. In response to this News Hub closure, we saw M Melissa Lee from the government claim that people no longer watch television news or the 6pm news. What do you make of this assertion? Um, I, think that that's, I think that we need to think a bit more uh, fully than that on this issue. Uh, uh, there isn't really this divide between legacy media and social media that, that we're very keen to, um, you know, to, to say there is. But in fact, uh, organizations like News Hub are reliant on social media for the dissemination of their stories, including their video stories. Including, you know, it's, it's the media who knows better these days, actually, that there's, uh, that there's just really one type of news now, um, and it goes out on multiple platforms, uh, and that uh, uh, you know, News Hub was reliant on social media um, to to disseminate its stories. So when the public go to their mobile phones, as the minister says they are, there's going to be no News Hub stories there. So it's it, there isn't this you know clear division. I mean, she's right in one way that people don't rush home for the 6 p.m. news like they did when I was young. Um, but that that's an argument now that has been superseded by the integration of legacy media and social media. From my point of view, I think there's, you know, a sort of a consciousness we need to come to as a country that the value of the media is, is sort of greater than we, we think it is. We take it for granted. And it's it's a classic case, I suppose, of not missing something till it's gone. <laughs> because if we don't proactively create a media, if we just leave it to markets, uh, then then we're going to end up with a pretty thin democracy uh, rather than a thick one, uh, which involves, you know, uh, New Zealanders in all sorts of interesting and, and proactive ways. So, so you know, this, this has significant ongoing impacts within uh, the sort of the political structures of the country. That was Head of Journalism at AUT, Greg Treadwell, on the closure of News Hub. The Wire. University of Auckland doctoral candidate 
Crystal Salatas, is developing a geographic information system map and data set aimed at reducing the prevalence of premature birth in Aotearoa. I started off the interview by asking Salatas to tell us about her research. I'm creating a map through GIS, Geographic Information System. It's a software. Uh, and I will be putting in there several layers, and the layers include like the census, deprivation quantiles, like rural urban indicators, and food outlets and sources that could be surrounding the residents of mothers with preterm birth. And I'll be focusing from the time frame from 2003 to 2021 to figure out if there's any type of influence or potential relationship between any of those influencers to the possibility of a preterm birth. What has research in this area looked like so far? It's very limited because GIS, it hasn't really been used, um, especially here in in New Zealand. Uh, So it's hard to get all the necessary data points. It's not in all one area and I can just do it quickly. I've had to go to several different data sources like the government and apply. I also have um, partners at the University of Canterbury and the Geo Health Library and Currently, putting the picture together is like still in development, so the research hasn't shown us much, but we, are, we do know that New Zealand is uh, having a rise in their preterm birth rates. It's sitting at about 8%. It's not rising significantly, but it is going up, and research has already showed us that nutrition is a potentially modifiable factor because it does have an influence on the outcome of a preterm birth, but we don't know the mechanism. We don't know exactly how it works. Nobody knows. Um, So my research project hopefully, potentially, will show us how it can work and how it happens. Can you tell us about the process involved in GIS mapping? GIS is, um, it can get complicated depending on how many layers you want to add or it can be simple. But it is used in several different fields, in urban planning, in management, um, in healthcare. For my specific project, I'm doing health geography. So I'm mapping the geography of the healthcare system and of healthcare, like just disease in general. So in my terms, it's not disease, it's preterm birth. So first, I have to collect all the data from all the different data sources. Since I'm using several different types of data, like water quality, that I have to go through every individual district council to figure out how they collect their data, and they don't all match. I'm also doing other environmental factors, such as like earthquakes that have happened or any uh, volcanic eruptions that have happened, or COVID, how it may have had an impact, or any civil unrest or conflict, like those mosque shootings that happened not too long ago, or any other terrorist attack that could have potentially had an impact, because we do know that an increased stress level in a pregnant woman could lead to a preterm birth. And then also the sociodemographic factors like um, income, ethnicity, education, where they live, um, deprivation quantiles, and then the nutrition, so the food outlets. And I'm focusing on all types of food outlets, not just the bad. I do have fast food and takeaways, but I also have like the vegetables and the fruits, like those supermarkets, the farmer's markets, and also like convenience stores and dairies. Um, the, mo- the most well-known ones, because there's so many that it would be a little bit too much to handle to get each individual one throughout New Zealand. But yeah, all of that will hopefully create a picture to let us know how all of those could be collaborating to um, create a higher or lower preterm birth rate in New Zealand. What led you to want to do this research? Uh, I've always been interested in maternal and newborn health. That's been my passion since I knew that I wanted to get into the health field. So it's been quite a long time. Um, And when I found out, like, 
my brother was born prematurely. He was born, I think, at 26 or 28 weeks, which is very, very, it's a, that's considered extremely preterm. Um, so in the Dominican Republic, which is where he was born, there's not much knowledge about like contributors or what's happening or how it can be prevented. So it's interesting because my research doesn't just benefit New Zealand. It can potentially benefit the entire world. And that's kind of what I want. And what my team, all of us want is to be able to see how what I'm doing, what we're all doing here can be translated to research that can benefit everyone else. What are your next steps in this research? Well, the next steps are to keep collecting the data. I am I know the data that I need. I'm just now trying to find the data sources that house them, um, which is what's going to take a long time because a lot of people don't even publicly produce data. So it's just talking to connections of connections of connections. And then after that, and um, I'm going to be creating the statistical analysis to be able to find if there's an influence between all of those influencers that we want to know with preterm birth. And then I will create my map that will eventually be able to be used to collaborate with like policymakers and healthcare professionals and the experts in the field so that we can translate the research findings into like real world strategies so we can reduce the preventable preterm births here in New Zealand. That was University of Auckland doctoral candidate Crystal Salatas on her research surrounding premature birth rates here in Aotearoa. Well, what a phenomenal thing for you to say. The Wire. We'll be back after this break. Keep it on the bay.
Milk thistle, calcium, high rise, boot cut, Advil, black jeans, blue jeans, cardigan, purse, passport, pajamas, silk. Toothpaste, brush, foundation, contact solution, mascara, lip mask, eye mask, earplugs, travel shampoo, conditioner. Button down laptop, hand cream, body lotion, Elephroid, YSL, Eck House Lata, Eyelash Curler, Vibrator, Teaser, Bye Bye. Experimental metal band Mr. Bungle make their highly anticipated return with the raging wrath of Australia and New Zealand tour. Live at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. The Bungles are set to thrash with an electrifying performance and wild antics. 
Mr. Bungle, joined by fellow pop stars Melvins at the Auckland Town Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. For complete tour and ticket information, visit livenation.co.nz. Auckland Council's long-term plan sets the direction for Tamaki Makoto for the next decade. It's a plan for how Auckland Council will provide services and activities for Aucklanders and how we plan to fund them. There are big choices to make for our long-term plan, 2024 through 2034, and we need your feedback to help us decide. Auckland, it's time to have your say. Go to akhaveyoursay.nz slash our plan to find out more. The start of your week just got a whole lot burger. Reburger are offering get a free upgrade of loaded fries on Mega Size Mondays. And on Cheapskate Tuesdays, you can get a burger, fries and a drink for only 18 bucks. Plus, keep your eye out for special burgers dropping. Reburger, the burger with ingredients as fresh as you are. 21 Whitaker Place, Grafton. Head to reburger.co.nz or cop the app to beat the queues. It's returning. 95 BFM blessings are looming. Get ready to be bestowed with big beats, big sweats. And big times, it's back! The B-Rave 2.0. B-Rave. B-Rave 2.0. Featuring Babyface Killer, AJ Honeysuckle, Versetti, Nalo Liapi, and one, Mr. Meaty Boy and Current Bias. B-Rave 2.0. 95 BFM and Under the Radar present the B-Rave 2.0 this Saturday at the Mothership. Tickets available now at undertheradar.co.nz. Thanks to Scrumpy, fresh with a bite. The bleeding edge of brunch time radio. Morning Glory. A 95 BFM institution. More BFM than screwing up the new stings. More BFM than that ad you remember from 10 years ago. The freshest tunes and the freshest talent. Getting you through your daily grind every weekday morning. Morning Glory. 10 a.m. to midday, Monday to Friday, only on 95BFM. Brought to you by The Tuning Fork. It upsets me so much that there's still people that we need to convince this is a real fucking thing. <laughs> real friggin' thing. The Wire. Welcome back. You're listening to The Wire. Let us know your thoughts on any of our pieces today. Text in on 5395. It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. Kia ora. This week, there has been widespread criticism shared over the government's decision to axe the Māori Health Authority, Te Akafaiora. Many public health experts, human rights organisations and fellow politicians have expressed concerns over what this move signals for Māori communities, social and political inequities, human rights and Aotearoa's democratic processes more broadly. The Pai Ora Amendment Bill, that is seeing the disestablishment of the Māori Health Authority, passed its third reading yesterday after being introduced to Parliament under urgency on Tuesday. This move has meant that the Waitangi Tribunal claim set to challenge the disestablishment bill was not able to be heard before the decision to axe Te Akafaiora was passed. The Waitangi Tribunal claim was also called under urgency and was originally scheduled to take place today. However, an inquiry can now only go ahead after the disestablishment bill has been passed into law, preventing any consideration of recommendations that would have been made by claimants Lady Tureiti Moxon and Janice Kuka. Alongside the immediate and ongoing concerns around what the removal of the Māori Health Authority signals for Māori healthcare and health outcomes, predominant outcries today centre around political implications of this unconstitutional course of government action. Janice Panoho, 
Te Kaiho Tu for Aotearoa's Public Service Association emphasised that for such an important constitutional issue, it is vital that parliamentary processes are used to allow proper public scrutiny and debate rather than to lock out people with dissenting voices. She and the organisation state that they are deeply disappointed in this government's lack of respect in regard to their titiriti partner. Earlier this week, organisation Action Station hosted a petition to Minister of Health Shane Reti, calling to protect the Māori Health Authority. The petition has now reached almost 14,000 signatures over a three-day period, meaning it has now surpassed the threshold needed to warrant a formal response from government. The coalition is yet to announce any new formal or proposed plans that will fill the gap left behind by Teaka Fiora's removal. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hotaka katoa mō tene wiki ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa i kororo ra. That's a wrap on The Wire for Rapare Thursday. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today and thanks to our producers Caden and Jasmine. Ni ra hoki te mihi ki a koutou i whakarongo ana. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.